0: This is the Life at Work Conference podcast, an initiative of City Bible Forum.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Laird, host of the Life at Work Conference podcast, where we meet real workers wrestling with real workplace
2: issues. Today, never more open, never more hostile. I think a lot of people who are struggling with the cultural framework at the moment who are not Christian uh, would love some of the Christian fruit without necessarily the Christian roots of the gospel but I think the church wants to say you can't have one without the other but let us show you what the fruit looks like and you might inquire about the roots. My guest today is Australian author,
1: commentator and pastor Steve McAlpine. I'm Andrew Laird and this is the Life at Work conference podcast. Well, it almost goes without saying that the culture towards Christians in Australia has changed radically over the last 10 to 20 years. In the public square, at least, there's a hostility that most of us have perhaps never encountered before. And workplaces are certainly not immune from it, with many organisations implementing policies or events that can make Christians feel uncomfortable or even attacked at times. And yet when you dig beneath the noisy public debate, a a seemingly contradictory posture emerges, an incredible openness amongst many people to explore if there is something more to life than the here and now. I'm joined now by someone who's done perhaps more thinking about this than most people in Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Steve McAlpine. Great to be with you. Thanks. Wonderful to be talking with you about this uh, very relevant topic for many, many people today, Steve. Um, now, as I mentioned a moment ago, you're a, an author, a commentator, pastor, but let's just go back to your days in the, in the wider workplace. Uh, what's your first memory of encountering hostility or maybe even just polite mocking because of your Christian faith?
2: I think my first memory of uh, mocking was probably school, but that was in Australia after living in Northern Ireland where (laughs) everyone went to church. And then you come here and people were like, what? And it was used as a leverage to hassle you. Uh, My first memory in a a secular workplace of uh, intrigue, I suppose, was working in the police department Mm -hmm. in uh, in Perth as a public servant, actually. Uh, And I used to go in with another Christian. We'd drive in and we'd uh, pray on the way in there. And uh, they were a little bit unsure of us, I think, but uh, so that wasn't hostility as such, a little bit more cheekiness but I think there's something about the police department where uh, black and white (laughs) comes to the fore and law and uh, illegality are issues, so they maybe are a bit more conservative about it than than otherwise.
1: Mm. You mentioned cheekiness and that's probably the case that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that would be the kind of thing that Christians might experience, but it's probably fair to say that the that we've moved beyond just simply cheekiness towards Christians at the times they can feel like a real significant hostility in fact towards people of a Christian faith certainly in the in the public square at least can you just help unpack how we have got here what's been going on in culture in the last 15 20 years that means we've we've reached this point
2: yeah it, that's interesting because it has tipped over and I, I've written about it the discombobulation that many Christians feel where once they were seen as part of the solution to where the culture was headed and we can all join in together and bring us to a great future to uh, were the seen as part of the problem and i think what we would have to grasp is whatever happened didn't happen overnight uh it was a couple of hundred years in the making but it's expressed itself very quickly mm. in the areas over the last 30 to 40 years around sexuality and gender and what it means to be human and if you think about the foundation of uh the university over the last 40 or 50 years in its liberal arts degrees they were very much pushing that christianity isn't part of the solution in our culture but it's actually a power play that's part of the problem mm. and while those ideas are at university perhaps they don't fly but if you're uh, doing a liberal arts degree, you're going to be the culture shaper of the next 30 to 40 years. So we see those ideas coming through media, uh, through all pop culture, readily now, when before they were a little bit to the side. And the rise of technology has fast-tracked those opinions. How's, so that, how's that, underneath that? Yeah, well, I think what happens is... For example, an idea would foment somewhere in the elite level maybe 100 years ago and mm-hmm. it would take a trickle down time to get to popular opinion. Nowadays it's a tweet or it's, a, it's an influencer in Portland who changes gender, who can get to a conversation with your uh, teenager in Wagga. Mm. tomorrow <laughs> so there's, there's the gap has shrunk between radical idea and general population at the same time there's a sense in our cultural frame even if you're a conservative person who is uh, you know ticks all the boxes of what uh, middle class Australia looks like mm. that the, the primary goal in life is uh, to self-express to be the you you want to be mm. and to push back against that, and Christianity does push back against that in its in its framework, uh, that's seen as not just wrong but bad uh, and unsafe. Mm. And that's, that's a narrative that's been pushed. And it's not just around sexuality and gender issues, though it seems to be presenting itself as the big issues. The, the points of the defeater beliefs of our culture are if you don't sign off on these things, then your position isn't worth thinking about.
1: Mm. You say it's not just at those uh, issues of sexuality and gender, although they're the ones that are often come to the fore. Uh, so where else might uh, we be seeing it or it's it's working itself out? Perhaps maybe not quite as controversial or certainly not at a, such a public level. What are those other
2: areas? I do think the exclusivity of Jesus and his claims. So in a world of you do you and in a world where we see we bump up much closer with people from other faiths in the mm. west in the workplace the exclusive claims of jesus are seen as something that challenges that personal autonomy yes though i you know say that jesus said exactly that in matthew where he says uh if anyone wants to come after me they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me so it's a battle not so much between sex and gender As uh, an autonomous view of who you are and a view of who you are under a framework that includes uh, God, community, all these different other areas of life. Mm. So, community and setting your, a community that is strong, that sets your framework of thinking, is also seen as a little bit hostile towards the
1: individual. Right. And so sex and gender in some ways are just one of the um, more common manifestations of that that we, that we see and is often, often uh, talked about. Look, you've given a, a bit of a snapshot of uh, how we've reached this point. Just you know, projecting into the future for a moment, if, if we can, is there, a, is there a certain trajectory that we are on? And there's some endpoint to all this, or at least a few next stages that are likely in terms of uh, the direction that we are heading.
2: Well, I think um, history is more like a cable is more less like a cable car and more like a roller coaster. Okay. Uh, there's no, and I think one of the narratives in our culture is that there's this utopian idea, ideal to it, towards which we're headed, when I think it's it's much more. Um, varied than that so secularism uh the narrative of secularism was that as science came to the fore uh, christianity and religion would sort of be like a, a a punch drunken fighter with one last blow and they'd be on the canvas but religion's got hotter in the world mm. and religion is more in the public square and mentioned more in the public square in government for example uh, than it, we would have assumed so i think that the tide goes out but the tide also comes in And so we can't predict what it's going to be like. Uh, The uh, 40s in the United States were nowhere near as religiously um, sort of hot as say the the early 60s and then the sexual revolution happened and it sort of collapsed. So Mm. history doesn't work the way we think it does. What I would say is that there's a deep sense of a loss of meaning and purpose narrative in our culture. Uh, You take the transcendent picture of God out of the, the public square, or or you take Christianity in particular out of the cultural framework, even if people didn't assent to it by going to church or believing it, and something has to fill the void. Mm -hmm. So at the moment we're in a meaning and purpose search in our culture and people are attaching that to who they are and who their gender might be, what their gender might be, or who they might be sexually. So I think we're going to find an increase in that, an increase in a search for meaning and purpose. And that's not a bad thing. I'd rather have that than a life of ease and comfort. I want people to be a little bit uh, discombobulated by the loss of something, a narrative as grand as the Christian narrative.
1: Yeah. Well, that leads in some ways into this, the flip side that I mentioned there of the way that you analyse uh, analysing culture where we've been talking about that hostility towards the Christian faith, uh, never more hostile, but you say alongside that is also this never more open. There's a real openness to the Christian faith. So can you un- unpack that for a little bit for us? Because some perhaps might feel, oh, well, I don't necessarily see that or, or feel that. Um, explain where and how you see that. And I guess it's related to what you were talking about there, that that lack of meaning that many people have.
2: Well, some of it's anecdotal. You're ha- um, Hearing from Christian unions around the universities of Australia, young people are coming to university having had a, uh, a good upbringing, a great ATAR result, uh, Good holidays, uh, good school experiences, but not sure what they're supposed to do with any of that. Mm. Uh, where's that going? Why does it even matter? So there's a question around the meaning and purpose that Jesus can give. And it's also about community. People look at the communities that Christians form, and in an anxious age and a lonely age, they're actually wondering, hey, why can't we have some of that? Mm. It, uh, cre- churches are often saying, oh, the level of volunteerism volunteerism in church has fallen through the floor but the level of volunteerism across everything has fallen through the floor yes there's a civic problem in our culture where privatized lives mean that you hurt privately as well Mm. and and the pandemic just just pushed that the the um the recent census data says less and less people are identifying as christian but that doesn't mean that less and less people are suddenly not turning up to church and we're there you know at the last census they were all going to church and praising Jesus and giving money and suddenly five years later, they're going nah that's not what happens it's just that the those who were not going and didn't bother with it suddenly just decided oh it's a home game to say I'm not not Christian anymore not religious anymore so I think there's certainly a, a push into, from people who have no experience of church at all. Mm. There's a generation coming through who whose parents weren't married in church, weren't buried in church, didn't go to church, weren't offloaded to Sunday school in the morning while their parents had coffee. I mean, that's two generations ago. Mm. It's it's a blank canvas again.
1: Mm. Mm. And in many ways, I think that helps frame how perhaps Christians should think think about the the culture that we're in, that if there is, yes, there's this hostility that many feel and perhaps are, are fearful of, and yet the, the move away from the Christian faith has led to this great uh, hollowness and emptiness, if you like, amongst many, many people, which the Christian faith can obviously speak into. Is there a sense in which you think we should be um, uh, encouraged, if you like, or hopeful about Uh, this climate that we find ourselves in, rather than a posture of
2: fearfulness? Well, I don't think a posture of fearfulness helps Christians anyway, Mm. uh, because we have a resurrected Jesus and a returning Jesus. That would be what I'd say. Mm. But I get the anxieties, I really do. Mm. Uh, One of the things that's interesting is that I think a lot of people who are struggling with the cultural framework at the moment who are not Christian uh, would love some of the Christian fruit without necessarily the Christian roots of the gospel. But right. I think the church wants to say you can't have one without the other, but let us show you what the fruit looks like, and you might inquire about the roots. So you do see, even in recent weeks, articles saying the last 60 years of the sexual revolution has dudded women, and men don't know who they're supposed to be. Mm. And even reading articles that are in ostensibly quite progressive uh, magazines and online journals saying maybe the solution is for for women is for men to own their stuff uh, not have children with uh, men who won't marry them etc etc and you go w- didn't we say that <laughs> in the <laughs> last 50 years and so I, I wouldn't want a conservatism without Jesus mm. so i w- I wouldn't want to return to a 1950s in your mind kind of conservative way of living yes. that didn't love Jesus. I think they both have to go together or you just end up with moralism and we don't want that either. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, look, that's really helpful, I think, for us to, to understand the, the climate that we find ourselves in, um, but also the the posture to take to it and also the opportunities that might be there um, for for the Christian faith that for many people, uh, there's a lot about it that is, uh, that is very positive. So when we come back, what I want to do is uh, help you, get you to help us think through, Steve, particularly how this climate that we're in plays itself out in the workplace and uh, how we can seek to um, make the most of these opportunities that we find ourselves um, with, uh, given the cultural picture that you've painted for us. Uh, so that's where we're going to go in just a moment when we come back.
0: Have you noticed increasing public hostility towards the gospel? Ever been questioned about your views on science, scripture or sex? Join Stephen McAlpine in our four-part online course that shows you how to bring the gospel to our world with confidence, gentleness and respect. Never More Hostile, Never More Open is available now. Go to citybibleforum.org slash courses Access your free trial.
1: Well, welcome back. Steve, what I want you to do now is to help us uh, consider how the rubber hits the road in this never more hostile, never more open climate that you've been describing for us, particularly in relation to the workplace where a lot of it uh, works itself out. Uh, so, firstly, what advice would you give a Christian person who is seeking to wisely and winsomely navigate a workplace that they might describe as being quite
2: hostile to the Christian faith? Cool, uh, interesting question, because I get asked it a lot mm-hmm. by people in workplaces. Um, Many people are keeping their heads down because they're afraid of uh, drawing the IR of the HR department because mm. they won't sign off on wear it purple day. Mm. But what you want to be is the kind of person who is quite, um, people are a little bit uh, intrigued by you because you are the person that they would go to if they had an issue to deal with because you won't take credit in your workplace for something you didn't do and you won't blame shift for something you did do. Mm. I think Christians in the workplace get the opportunity to live transparent lives that are uh, winsome, non-gossipy, not uh, over-preening or proud, and not career-minded for its own sake at the cost of everything else. So I think the first thing you might want to think about is how about I do less talking and more listening for a while in the Mm. workplace? If I'm asked a question, I should answer it. But we are trained as Christians in the art of apologetics to do lots of talking, and I think we need to do some more listening. That isn't to say you say nothing, because sometimes you're going to get painted into a corner and you're going to have to give your opinion as to why you won't do something. But make it hard for them, who are not Christians in your workplace or the HR department, make it hard for them to really come down on you, because they go, I don't get this guy, I don't get this woman. She's... Mm. um, She's winsome and lovely, yet according to the script, she should be some sort of uh, something with phobia written at the end of it. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> she's not hateful. So, yeah, yeah, and it's not happening. And if if you can upset that framework, I think that's a really good start in a hostile workplace.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that. That life of living in a distinctive and a, an attractive way, so that when inevitably the time comes where have to say something that is going to rub up against people in a in a perhaps a confrontational sort of way, it's in the context of a person that people know as having a, a real genuine love for for others. That's a, I think that's really really helpful uh, framework for us to to think about there. Um, you mentioned before the break the the loneliness, the search for for meaning and purpose that so many people have and the way in which I guess that provides lots of openings for the Christian faith uh, that we haven't had before. So just uh, speaking to that for a moment in terms of uh, where we might uh, lean into that in the workplace where there's a, an openness amongst our colleagues for these sort of things that we've perhaps not seen before. How do we go about broaching that with people, exploring that with people?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, Some research has shown that uh, people are refusing to make friends in the workplace anymore. It's just too hard. And uh, pandemics. And people are working from home and taking the opportunity to do it. Mm. But broaching the subject in the workplace is, I think the Christian community, the church, is... As uh, Leslie Newbegin said, it's the hermeneutic of the gospel. What did he mean so by that? He meant that if a non-Christian looks at the church, they go, oh, that's what that's all about. Uh-huh. I start to understand what is Christianity stuff. I see loving people who aren't always getting on with each other, are able to forgive each other. So getting people to see more than you, your other non-Christian, your, your other Christian friends, is helpful. But that may not always be possible in the work setting. But I just think having a, making sure that your encounters with people are around conversations about who you, who you are and what your life looks like. Uh, conversely, at the same time that people are saying we want to work from home, there's a real push to, among younger generations, to bring your whole self to work. Mm. Now that can be dangerous uh, because you know work might decide one day they don't want you to bring any of you to work because the KPIs say <laughs> you're going to get sacked. <laughs> so, I actually think having a non-anxious presence in the workplace is the way to go. Mark Sayers' new book talks about this, that the the person who's most influential in a work setting is not necessarily the person with CEO on their door or their floor manager or um, in a family system, it's not necessarily the oldest male. It's the person who's the non-anxious presence, who's the person that people go to if there's a problem. And I think Christians can be that in the workplace and they can acquit themselves well of their job as well as navigating that space to be the person who's trustworthy. Just mm. trustworthiness in, a, in an office is a huge issue. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's
1: really helpful there, Steve. Um, I think that is a, a wonderful way for us to think about the kind of person that we can be in the workplace and, and, and with our colleagues, that non-anxious presence and that trustworthy person that you describe. Um, I want to tackle a few specific issues now that uh, I've certainly been asked about over the years and no doubt you have been asked about as well too when it comes to uh, the workplace. Um, we're at Purple Day uh, and other similar sort of days where, where we're meant to nail our colours to the wall in terms of how we uh, think about certain uh, certain issues around sexuality or gender or, or other issues. How would you counsel a Christian person to... Uh, winsomely navigate those sort of days that uh, inevitably arise throughout the corporate calendar?
2: Well, speaking from the sheltered workshop (laughs) of a a, uh, ministry uh, role, I wouldn't want to be too flippant. Mm. If you've been burned by a wear a purple day, uh, let me say that I think that will happen to Christians at some stage, in some settings, Mm -hmm. that you... Uh, you know, someone will be thrown to the lions at some stage. <laughs> Daniel in Babylon for all his goodness, his winsomeness, his fearlessness, his faithfulness, was put in the lion's den. Mm. And Christians have to be aware of that. If you're not going to wear purple, as I said before, if you've been the jerk at work and you don't wear purple, you've got, you got very little margin. Mm. If you're the winsome, kind, godly person and you don't, and people know that your convictions are such, Here's what might happen. They'll publicly say nothing because they're afraid. <laughs> they don't want to get hassled by the HR department for not wearing purple. But they'll privately say, you know what? I really think you should be allowed to do as you like. You don't have to. Go with your convictions. And really, you can play the you do you card right there. Mm. You know, If everyone else is allowed to express themselves individually, why are you asking us to corporatize ourselves for the sake of this? Yeah. Um, that seems a bit odd if in a you do world. So I think you want to call out the inconsistencies with that. You also want to say there are other people in this workplace outside of Christians who don't necessarily hold to those perspectives. Mm. And we have Muslim friends and Jewish friends and other friends from other settings who may say, actually, that's not what I espouse. Uh, that may cost you
0: mm. and
2: probably is costing some people already. So I'd say, and if you do decide to wear it purple, and some people do, mm. um, that's going to be a conscience issue and you'd, you'd want to have a good explanation for it for your Christian and non-Christian friends rather than just I'm going along with the crowd. I don't think Christians have ever uh, been notable in history whenever they've gone with the crowd. Mm. Uh, the sugar rush of the immediate acceptance always fades away over time. Mm. Uh, so I think you'd, you'd want to be careful but I do think that there's a pushback generally against the uh, what many people are calling virtue signaling in corporations, because they realise that the corporation's, the bottom line is really the bottom line in a corporation, mm. and many of them are just saying, "I'll do this because it uh, it makes us look good." Uh, not everyone's doing that's not always that cynical because people do believe in the product. However, it often is. There though. is push. <laughs> yeah, there's pushback in the culture. I think yeah. generally, never mind the Christian framework mm. against such uh, demands of the workplace.
1: Yeah, well, let me just go into that one a little bit more, um, because I was actually having a conversation with someone recently about uh, a Wear It Purple Day, and um, uh, say a Christian makes the choice to wear purple. You said there that Christians need to be able to explain that well, both to their Christian brothers and sisters, but equally the people that they might work with. So how do they do that? How do they explain that
2: well? (laughs) Well, you couldn't uh, be the person who's ready to explain it on the day. I think you'd Mm -hmm. want some lead time in that, um, if you're really doing it for uh, noble reasons and not just to hide away. Sure, yep. Um, And as I said, I live in a sheltered workshop. Uh, Here's me telling someone whose mortgage might be on the line. Mm. (laughs) Though work is more complex than that. I think what ends up happening is this, if you're noted as not a team player in your role because you won't mm. uh, you won't get there won't be a religious reason you're sacked it'll be it's not or not um, promoted it'll just be not a team player yeah so i think with the if you do want to wear it you'd want to have a really clear articulate understanding of why you are why you affirm people's uh, humanity and dignity without affirming or being proud about Lifestyles, okay, but that's something you you'd have to have built up over the time, I think, before that day actually arrives. Yes, yes, that takes
1: some uh, some explaining to do in the lead-up, as you as you say. Yeah, let me give you another uh, specific scenario. Someone raised this with me uh, over lunch just last week: gender pronouns. Um, And so there might be a request in the workplace to put them in an email signature. That was certainly this person's case they were sharing with me. Um, Or colleagues who might request that you use different ones either of them or um, loved ones in their life, children perhaps. So how should Christians respond when this issue is raised in the workplace? What do we do with gender pronouns? I
2: think it's, uh, you know black and white answers to great questions um, <laughs> <laughs> difficult I mm. think uh, there's a couple of things that you have to balance the pastoral issue from the um, the truth issue it's always it's with every issues what's the loving thing to do what's the truthful thing to do and what might be the long-term loving thing to do for someone who's quite confused about these issues uh, I think it's less an issue at the moment in the workplace and more an issue in schools mm-hmm. where there's a social contagion issue around gender and part of that is that some young people are four different genders over the course of a year, and teachers are tired trying to figure out what they are. So mm. some of that's going to blow itself out. On the flip side, if you worked in a setting where, and th- you know, I know of people that are, um, that are long-term trans people who you've never met in their, uh, uh, their gender. Of their, if they're a man and they've moved to identifying as a woman, Uh, and you meet them as a woman Mm. uh, in the sense that they are presenting as a woman and you've never not known them that way it's very hard to say he Mm. especially you know I can think of a a well-known Australian journalist uh, who is the same it's like I've never known of that person not to be who they are as a woman Mm. so it'd be very hard to think of them as a man very complex times the question is interesting, isn't it? Because names got changed all the time uh, for Daniel she, uh, Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Their mm. names were changed to reflect the zeitgeist and the times and the, and the Babylonian framework of life. And that would have been a tension for them. Because mm. the king might say, when you're in my presence, you don't call yourself Daniel. <laughs> we call you Daniel because it's in the Bible, but his other name. Mm. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same. So these are complex issues and I, I wouldn't want to um, make a hard and fast rule. My own personal opinion is that I would find it hard to use uh, pronouns of someone I didn't believe was of that gender because I've also got a liberty of conscience issue as well. Yeah. It, what we're struggling with at the moment is an era of competing rights and which one has more cultural cachet than the others, has a, uh, a right to my religious framework of what humans are made like, which isn't just a religious framework, I actually believe it's a natural framework, versus mm. my gendered identity of what I believe is right. Though we're All the struggles we're dealing with in the cultural framework at the moment are around competing rights.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and what you've said just there as well too, in terms of, you know, the, these are not black and white issues where there's a one-size-fits-all answer for the Christian person if they... If they do this, they're sinning. If they don't do that, uh, they're not sinning. It's not that kind of category, is this?
2: I don't think it is. Some people are going to argue that it is and will say that I'm going down the wrong path here. I don't think it is. A clinical psychologist who has a trans person coming to their practice, if if the clinical psychologist is Christian, invariably they'll use the pronouns in that setting. That the person requests... Exactly, hmm. Hmm. yeah, and that seems common, from hmm. what I can understand.
1: Yeah, yeah, now that's helpful, uh, and it speaks to obviously the importance of uh, the wisdom that we need, not only our own wisdom, but the wisdom of the wider uh, Christian community. Let me just bring uh, one final scenario uh, to you. This one maybe is a little bit <laughs> easier to work through. Um, D&I policies in the workplace, Um And perhaps as a workplace, it's got a a broad suite of uh, diversity and inclusion going on, but religion's not represented in that mix. Now, how do you see this perhaps as presenting as an opportunity rather than a threat for Christians? And how might a Christian be able to navigate this in a really positive way?
2: Well, I think it's worth addressing at the start with the HR department saying um, uh, globally, religious discrimination is a massive issue mm. uh, you need to you know uh, do some research on that HR department mm-hmm. and it is also according to the UN a huge issue of rights mm. and in the and what you want to live in such a way that you show that your religion isn't private it's no point living a privatized Christian life and then coming on the week before wear at purple day and go forget it mm-hmm. you to say Christianity isn't something the, the difference for people at the moment is that people say that sex and gender is embedded in who you are and religions is something you take on, but that's a very Western way of looking at religion. The average person in an Eastern setting, the average Muslim doesn't think that Islam, for them, is something they just decide to take on, mm. independent of who they are. It's embedded in themselves and in their culture, their community and their way of seeing the world. It's a social imaginary. Our secular world doesn't see it that way and also doesn't see that its own way of looking at the world is a perspective. Mm. So there might be some long-term education to go on there as well as saying to the HR department, it's worth thinking about religious discrimination, not just for me, but we have three engineers from India who are mm. Sikhs and we have a, a young Chinese Uyghur Muslim. Mm. <laughs> mm. Are you thinking about those people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, all of a sudden, people get a bit nervous, I think, you know, when they go, <laughs> cool, I might have overlooked that. So you don't have to be um, confrontational, but you might want to have a conversation about it. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Oh, that's really that's really very helpful, and uh, I think you and I both know n- numerous stories of where Christians have, have navigated that really uh, wisely and winsomely, and it's led to great opportunities for uh, them to be public about their Christian faith and any gathering of Christians that might be associated with that with that workplace. Steve, just one final thing to ask you, and that is um, I'd just love to hear any experiences that you might be able to share that you've had that where in spite of this uh, public hostility personally you have encountered incredible openness from people to the Christian faith so perhaps any stories or a particular story you could leave us with to encourage us from your own experience?
2: Well this one does go back to probably when it was less hostile uh, just because of and once again working in the police department Mm. and my friend and I would drive in every day and it was quite a Hotbed of licentiousness in the the department we were in. That's such a (laughs) shop. Yeah, such a shop. Yeah. Lots of adultery, lots of Mm. scorn, lots of um, silverbacks, you know, trying to uh, dominate the place. Mm. And some bad things happened. And there was one very brassy, loud girl who we we really liked. (laughs) She She was out there. And one day she said in a loud voice in the open plan office about my friend and I how come these two guys are the only guys that speak about their wives in this place as if they love them mm. and the pall of silence that descended on the office and it wasn't like we were anything amazing mm. it's just that we thought we we're going to be godly in every situation and mm. she she saw that and saw a difference mm. I think and I I made it my point to speak to all the waifs and strays in that office and mm. to the point where there's one man who'd ended up working there. I didn't want to be there. I was an older man nearing retirement in a public service low role and he never spoke. Mm. Never spoke to anyone and he just shuffled off to do the mail every day with another group of people and one of the police officers put a bet with me that I wouldn't be able to get him to speak and have a conversation. We came back from doing the mail that day chatting away about life and Mm. where we're at and Mm. it was just, I love this guy. While everyone else scorns him, and people were amazed. Wow, I've never seen him so, and you know, bright. I said, "Well, the workplace is—you bring Jesus to the workplace, right? Yeah. And he makes a difference there." Yeah, yeah, and that's lovely, and it's a wonderful
1: example of what you've been talking about right throughout this episode. That, that as we seek to navigate a, a complex um, culture and climate that we are living in, uh, the way we conduct ourselves over. The days, weeks, months and years that we're rubbing shoulders with the people that we work with will be a significant witness and and in some ways give us the permission to, to say things that might be uh, objectionable to some people, confrontational for some people, um, but if it comes from that context of a person who's been known as someone who loves um, It makes a massive, massive difference. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your wisdom, your uh, experience in trying to navigate what is a very complex climate, uh, especially in relation to the workplace. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot,
2: Andrew. It's great to to be with you.
1: Well, in our next episode, we're going to be joined by company director and Former senior executive Graham Hooper. Now, Graham's had an extensive global career, having lived in six countries and worked in another 20. And he's also the author of a brand new book called Proving Ground, where he reflects on the many lessons that God taught him over his working life. Graham has lots of wisdom and terrific stories from the workplace to share, so be sure to catch that episode. But until next time, I'm Andrew Laird, and you've been listening to the Life at Work Conference podcast.
0: The Life at Work conference podcast is produced by City Bible Forum. To find out more and register for the conference, go to citybibleforum.org slash lifeatworkconference. Enjoyed this podcast? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing and leaving a rating so others can find us too. Join us next time on the Life at Work conference podcast with Andrew Laird.